I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. Welcome to the ABA Checklist, Chihuahua and Middle Arc, the result of an accepted split by the American Ornithological Society's North American Classification Committee. It is a southwestern U.S. western Mexico species that for years was considered a distinct subspecies of eastern meadowlark. The research that led to this split was undertaken by ABA Young Birder alum Johanna Beam, who at the time was an undergraduate, a fact that I find really amazing. Uh, she found that the, the now Chihuahuan meadowlark was not actually very closely related at all to either of our known meadowlark species and was, in fact, if you you had to pick one of them, was actually closer to Western than to Eastern, the species that it was stuck with for decades. All that is is very cool. I imagine this must be extremely satisfying to Joe. Congratulations. A couple notes on the split. The name is intriguing. One of the subspecies has long been known as Lillian's Metalark, but the NACC seems hesitant to create more eponyms. I certainly applaud that even if it does seem sort of incongruous with their previous statements, wanting to avoid common name business. My favorite name for this new species was Pallid Meadowlark. That was the name suggested by Johanna as well. Uh, but Chihuahuan Meadowlark, it's unobjectionable. It's fine. We do already have a raven with that name after all, and that is that is quite a tandem. Second note, this was the only split of note to go through this summer. Uh, there was a split of stone chat. It doesn't really affect the ABA area all that much. It's a largely old world species, and the only stone chats that have turned up in the ABA area have all been the, what are now, Siberian stone chat. There were a bunch of other splits that seemed plausible. You may remember I talked about this with Nick Block a couple months ago, about a month ago, I guess. Uh, the Wimbrel split, the uh, Eurasian and Hudsonian Wimbrel did not go through that. I admit that that surprised me quite a bit. The house wren mega split, all those cool little house wren subspecies across the Caribbean that also did not go through. I, I understand wanting genetic evidence for that, but for some stuff, I feel like common sense should prevail. Alas. In addition to the AOS changes, there were a couple additional changes to the ABA checklist, including the addition of a couple parrot species based on populations in California. Those are red-masked parakeet and lilac-crowned parrot. The latter is sort of interesting in that it is endangered in its native West Mexico, and the population in Southern California could be something of a, a safety net, a nursery for those Mexican birds. And of course, there was the addition of two vagrant species, uh, bat falcon from South Texas and rufous-tailed rock thrush from Northern Alaska, both seen in 2021, both officially now on the ABA checklist. So that's fun. Looking ahead, we are awaiting the report from the WGAC, 
which is the working group for avian checklists. If, if you haven't following all this stuff, um, that is essentially the eBird and IOC. IOC is the International Ornithological Congress, sort of the taxonomic authority for, for the rest of the world. Uh, they are, they've gotten together and they're trying to come up with a, a world taxonomy that will be probably be adopted by international conservation partners like BirdLife International. Uh, many of the proposals that the AOS NACC have considered in the last couple of years have come from that group. Uh, submissions from that group basically trying to get the AOS on board with what will likely be some pretty significant taxonomic changes. Unfortunately, the AOS has, with a few exceptions, uh, failed to accept many of those proposals. So what we have is a potential situation as soon as this fall where eBird will adopt a taxonomy that will probably contain some splits, some name changes uh, that is different from the AOS taxonomy that is adopted by the ABA and also notably uh, the U.S. government and I assume Canada as well. I'm not sure what that means for bird listers since so many of us use eBird. I use eBird. You use eBird, I'll bet. I'd be more surprised if you didn't. Uh, I'll be transparent. It is a discussion that we are in the middle of here at the ABA. We will see what happens. It's an interesting dynamic. Um, if anything does change, you will hear it here or on the ABA website. On the show today, one bird that isn't going anywhere in any taxonomy is the endearing Clark's Nutcracker which in addition to being one of our most intelligent birds is inextricably tied to the health of the white bark pine. That relationship and the efforts to save declining populations of white bark pine was the subject of the second season of the Headwaters podcast that is produced by Glacier National Park and hosted by Perry Sasnet. Perry joins me today to talk about nutcrackers and white bark pine, all after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of August, 2022. The Lemkin summer continues and states that have yet to boast a record of this weird waiter are getting fewer and fewer as the year runs on. One new state to add to their haul is Wisconsin, where the state's first and second records of Lemkin came from two different sightings this month, one in Racine County and one in Dane County, because with Lemkins, it is always buy one, get one free. Those keeping track should also note that this week also saw Illinois get its fifth and Missouri its eighth. Missouri's first, you may remember, it was only like eight weeks ago. So they're they're on pace for uh, one limpkin a week. And that was not all for Wisconsin as a brown booby, that tropical wanderer that was the hot ticket before all these limpkins and neotropic cormorants and black-bellied whistling ducks, was seen in La Crosse. It was another first for the state. That bird was on the Minnesota border and helpfully crossed over the river to become a Minnesota first as well. A good bird for all you total tickers. Up to Massachusetts, we're on a pelagic off of Chatham, a Cape Verde shearwater, a Massachusetts first and only the second record of this Macaronesian breeding tube nose in the AV area was seen. Uh, the other record came from North Carolina in 2004. Though there have been three other potential reports from North Carolina, Massachusetts, and Florida in the past. This is a tough identification. It looks a lot like a smaller, thinner build, darker quarry shearwater, which is very common. Uh, the bird in question reportedly circled the boat where excellent documentary photos were obtained before disappearing into a giant swirling mixed flock of shearwaters that are gathering in the North Atlantic this time of year. Those are the highlights 
of the week. But for a full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. One of the most iconic and beloved birds of the North American West is the Clark's Nutcracker. The antics of that bold and intelligent corvid are the highlight of anyone's trip to the high country, and it will come as no surprise to anyone that the bird's relationship to that ecosystem goes beyond begging for trail mix from hikers. All this was recently the topic of Glacier National Park's Headwaters podcast. It is hosted by Perry Sasnet of the National Park Service. She's here to talk nutcrackers. Welcome, Perry. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, you know, the subject of this podcast series is primarily the whitebark pine. Uh, can you talk about that tree species, where you find it, what the habitat looks like? Yeah. So the whitebark pine is a very charismatic tree. Um, and a lot of people have, you know, it's funny when we talk to people for the podcast, Normally, you mention a tree, you don't get a strong reaction. Like, do you that's have right. a lot of thoughts and feelings on Douglas fir? Not, <laughs> not very, but really. Not really. It's, it's, that's but your whenever... standard. It's your bog standard pine tree, yeah, or, or, or conifer, I should say. <laughs> right, but whenever we would tell people we're doing this show about white bark pine, everyone went, oh, "I love white bark pine." Oh man, what is it about white bark pine that people like so that? Much? It took a whole season to answer, honestly. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, it's a really charismatic tree. It has these big, poofy needles and branches that kind of reach up toward the sky. So they really stick out compared to the little mm-hmm. kind of Christmas tree-shaped subalpine fir that you normally see. And I think part of it is that they live in a special place. Like yeah. when I go on a hike and I get up to the high elevations – you kind of know that you're going somewhere special to have a unique experience that's not part of the everyday. And so when you get into that territory where white bark pine lives or the Clark Snowcracker live, it's mm-hmm. it's a special place and those trees and those birds go along with that. So I think that maybe that's part of why people have such a attachment to this tree. Um, but it's also really ecologically important. It's a keystone species. It has these really nutritious pine nuts that are a food source for all kinds of different creatures beyond the Clark's Nutcracker, including grizzly bears, black bears, squirrels, tons of other birds. So it's a really important part of the ecosystem as well, not just for people. Yeah, I I totally get this idea of going to a special place and seeing this tree as sort of like a, the sentinel, this tree that tells you that you are you are some you've accomplished something. I think, especially in the right, West, when like, you're going up. <laughs> Yeah. And like in a lot of different places, the places that you go that are special, the things that are there are also special, whether that's, you know, a river or a certain valley or in this case, the subalpine. Yeah. And so where does the Clark's Nutcracker come into this story of the whitebark pine? So Clark's Nutcrackers and whitebark pine have a unique and mutualistic relationship where they they depend on each other. So mm-hmm. the Clark's Nutcracker feeds on whitebark pine seeds. It's a really nutritious food source for them. I mean, they eat all kinds of stuff. They eat the seeds of other trees. They eat bugs. Um, but if you compare, you know, like a pine nut, the mm-hmm. whitebark pine nuts are similar to the pine nuts that we eat um, compared to the tiny little seeds of right. other trees. 
way more nutritious, way more fatty. And so they're a great food source, especially in the winter when there's not so many other bugs or other food mm-hmm. sources around. And so what the Clark's Nutcrackers do is they, it's pretty amazing to watch them actually hammer open these cones with their beaks. <laughs> um, they really go for it. And then they take out the seeds one at a time and sort of like toss them back into the, into their throat, into their sublingual pouch, and they'll store a bunch of them in there. Mm-hmm. And then they go cache them a few at a time on sort of open hillsides, often in burned areas, because that's they kind of triangulate to remember their location. Hmm. So burned areas are one of their favorite spots, which are also one of Whitebark Pine's favorite spots to yeah. sprout and c- to grow. And so they're great at remembering where they put these seeds, but they forget a few of them. So mm-hmm. it's only a couple percent, but those couple percent of the caches that they forget grow into the next generation of whitebark pine. Are Clark's nutcrackers particularly good at excavating the seeds from a whitebark pine? Yeah. So they are one of few species that can open the cones. Hmm. So if pines yeah, are funny that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, they're sort of inextricably linked. You yeah. know, and if you see them, they have this striking large beak. It's not they're kind of like yeah. woodpeckers. Yeah, um, it's huge. Yeah, one of the old names for for Clark's nutcracker was woodpecker crow, which uh, just, no way. just came to be. Yeah, so it makes sense. You know, obviously this it is does. a name that was given by European settlers, but I imagine it, this sort of behavior and this sort of connection has been something that people have noticed between this bird and this tree for as long as people have noticed this bird and this tree. Yeah, it's a it's a very noticeable relationship yeah, and a pretty yeah. char- they're both very charismatic species. Yeah. So it's yeah, and I mean Clark's Nutcrackers are also so loud and mm-hmm. playful and so they're attention grabbing on their own. So yeah, they're fun to watch. Yeah, so what was your first experience with Clark's Nutcracker? What did you expect and how did the reality mm. sort of differ from what you what you want, what you thought you'd see. So I, I started working for the park service. I did a first couple seasons in the Tetons Mm -hmm. and I'm a geologist by training. And so it took a while to become sort of a more (laughs) well-rounded naturalist. To look up rather than looking down. (laughs) Right. And I only became a birder a couple years ago. But so back in, you know, 2014, 15, 16, in the Tetons, you'd go on these hikes and you'd get up there. Tree line is about 9,000 something feet. And so you've done a lot of work to get up there. Mm -hmm. And you'd get into these forests where you'd start to see a lot of these dead trees with these silver skeletons. And at the time, I didn't even know what they were. I was just like, oh, yeah, we're we're getting to the dead trees. We're almost to the outline. <laughs> and you'd hear the Clark's Nutcrackers. And again, yeah. I didn't know what they were, but you'd hear this, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. It's like, oh, we've arrived. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. before I knew anything about their relationship or about this story, they were familiar sound, like the sounds of a Clark's Nutcracker were familiar mm-hmm. to me. The white bark pines were familiar to me. And so... And they were already part of that special place. And so learning more about each species and how they interact and their relationship has just made it all the more meaningful to me. Yeah. In preparation for this, I was trying to think back to um, my first experience with Clark's Nutcracker as well. And it was at uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. So if there's something about (laughs) nutcrackers and national parks. Um, (laughs) 
they, they both like those scenic places. And it was, and it was, it was actually begging for food. Really? <laughs> Trail Ridge Road <laughs> up at the top. Yeah, Tusk, they. Tusk. I know, but I guess you know sometimes they get tired of working uh, so hard for the for the pine needles that so they're going right? to try and get peanuts and. I mean, and, they are uh, smart. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things that people love about them is that they are clearly this bird that is is working through things, and that comes from that sort of triangulation of yeah. of, of you know locating where their caches are. Yeah, they're super smart. It's it's amazing to me how they can. It's hard enough for me to right, be like, right, right. oh, which tree did I leave my backpack under? Let alone where <laughs> yeah. did I cache these seeds underground? Yeah. Was it this burned log yeah. or this burned log? Yeah, for me, it's like, where's my wallet? Where's my keys? <laughs> <laughs> I work from home. I don't use them all that often. So. <laughs> how does the, how do the Clark's nutcrackers interact with the other organisms, living animals that live in those in those places? I imagine when they are creating these caches, they're not just I mean, they can't eat all the pine nuts. So there's other things that are using these as well. Yeah, I would imagine that squirrels will come across those mm-hmm. nutcracker seed caches. Um, squirrels actually make huge middens with some of the pine yeah. cones. And so those are a bigger source, a bigger and better source for bears or something that will come raid those middens with so many cones and so many seeds. Whereas, you know, coming across a nutcracker cache with a couple seeds in the ground. Oh, really? Is that it? I, I guess in my mind, yeah. I imagine something a lot bigger, but it's really just one or two. Well, so it's funny, actually, when you're hiking around and you see these white bark pine trees, you'll often see a few stems coming mm-hmm. up, like a few different trees. Oh, right. And yeah. one of the way, because, you know, to me, it's like, well, I don't know, maybe it's just multiple sprouts from the same seed. But sometimes you'll see that one or two of them have died from blister rust, which is one of the threats that they're facing. And another one hasn't because they're from different seeds. So they're genetically different. Oh, wow. And like those are all from nutcracker caches, a couple planted together. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, whitebark pine as being sort of a threatened species a lot of a lot of the podcast is about you know the threat to white bark pine and sort of the its decline in population and, and a lot of the work that is being done to kind of bring it back to where mm-hmm. it was you know what are the biggest threats to this this pine tree and by extension to this this whole ecosystem yeah so one of the guests we had on the podcast described it as kind of a three-legged stool like there are these three threats that white bark pine trees are facing and so one is the mountain pine beetle which has killed a lot of trees across the West over the last decade or so. And what's new is that normally really cold temperatures can kill the beetle larva. And you get a lot of those cold temperatures at high elevations where white bark pine live. But as climate change is progressing, we're seeing those cold temperatures less and less often. So it's allowing the beetles to move up in elevation. Right. And so, yes, they're native to the West, but they're somewhat novel to whitebark pines, and they don't have the defenses that a lot of those other lower elevation pine trees do. Yeah. So that's one. Another one is, and the biggest one here in Glacier, is blister rust. And that's a non-native fungus that attacks all white pines, five needle pines. Um, And, yeah, it enters through the pores on their needles and slowly moves down through the branches into the trunk of the tree and kills it bit by bit. Um, And then the third threat is climate change. And that is, you know, its own threat. 
changing temperatures, changing our ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And it also exacerbates the other ones, particularly exactly. pine beetles. Yeah. So they're kind of all say. intertwined. Yeah, I was going to say that sort of uh, insect pest moving up in uh, elevation is a, is a familiar one that people who are interested in birds know. It's you know what's happening in Hawaii with the mosquitoes and the native birds there. And it's sad to say that it's happening there, but is there mm -hmm. there are efforts to move these white park pines to places where they previously have grown and maybe they have you know been extirpated from these areas? What what are, what are researchers, botanists, foresters doing? to kind of uh, address some of these issues? In a way, the pine beetles are have sort of the easiest solution. So, <laughs> well, solution is too strong, but mitigation, I suppose. Fair enough, yeah. So there's a pheromone called verbenone, and it's something that pine beetles produce when they, they've infested a tree and they want to tell other pine beetles coming along, no vacancy, move to the next right. one, this huh. tree's occupied. And so we can put a little packet with that pheromone on the trunk of a tree and say, there are no pine beetles here, but we're, we're going to make you think that there are. Right. So that protects those trees from, from pine beetles. And of course, you can't put a little packet on every single white park pine across the Rockies. to get to some of those places, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we do focus those efforts on these key trees called plus trees, and those are trees that have shown some natural resistance to the blister rust because a lot of the restoration program kind of hinges on these plus trees that show some of that natural resistance. And what they do is they harvest cones from those trees and with hypothetically, hopefully, with genetic resistance to blister rust and raise those seedlings in a nursery in Coeur d'Alene and then plant them back on the landscape in places where whitebark pines grow in natural whitebark pine habitat in the hopes that we're getting more of those blister rust resistant genes back on the landscape. Wow. So where did the where did the nutcrackers what is their role in all of this? So the nutcrackers are the natural seed dispersers of whitebark pine. So when we went out with some of the vegetation crews that were planting some of these little whitebark pine seedlings, mm -hmm. they were kind of like, okay, you need to channel your inner Clark's nutcracker. <laughs> Where would you cache these seeds? Where would you put these? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's normally their role. And one of the things that's that I didn't really think about, because I think it's a common story, like the birds, you know, they cache the seeds, the seeds sprout, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. But I didn't really understand the role that plays in the eventual forest structure and forest succession. Because one of the places that Clark's nutcrackers love to cache the seeds and that whitebark pines love to grow is in these recently burned areas. If you think about most other trees and their seeds, they're just dispersed by the wind. Right. And so... Maybe there's anywhere. kind of a mosaic yeah. burn yeah. pattern and there's some seed sources within the fire footprint, but, you know, not always. And so Clark's nutcrackers, they can fly around for miles and miles from the seed source. Yeah. So those white bark pine trees are often the first things to sprout in this burned area. And I mean, those are harsh environments. It's so hot. It's so exposed. It's, yeah, it's a tough place for a seedling. And so once those white bark pine trees get going... They provide shade and a bit of cover for other plants to come in, for other tree species to come hmm. in. Does the process of caching the seeds help the white 
bark pines. Because I imagine, you know, you, you talked about these seeds uh, kind of scattering far and wide. And the first thing that I thought was, well, yeah, they just sort of land on the ground and then they're, who knows what could happen to them there. But the Clark's Nutcrackers are taking that extra step. They're taking these seeds and they're actually depositing them in like a cooler place, a hidden place, a place where these seeds are more likely perhaps. Yeah, and they're often like tucked right under yeah, a fallen right? log in this yeah. slightly more shaded spot where I guess it's easy for them to remember, but it's also maybe a little easier for them to sprout. Right, but, yeah. But yeah, um, Clark's nutcrackers are the only way that white bark pine seeds are planted. It's the only seed dispersal mechanism. The cones don't open on their own. Most pine cones sort of open either with the heat of a fire or just open on their own. But white bark pine seeds don't. So they rely on the nutcrackers. And, you know, if a bear opens the cones, they're eating the seeds. That's right. Those seeds have got to go out. they got to go on a journey before they're going to be deposited. Yeah. Yeah. And they won't survive that journey. Maybe not. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas, yeah. So it's the Clark's nutcrackers are the only seed dispersal mechanism for these trees. And so the white bark pine depends 100% 100% on Clark's Nutcrackers. Clark's Nutcrackers are a little more versatile. They <laughs> they could probably make it without white bark pine. Yeah, I was going to say, which, which but... species needs each other, the other one more? And I guess it's the it's the pine. The white bark pine needs the Clark's yeah. Nutcracker, and the Clark's Nutcracker would like to have the white bark pine. Yeah, it's convenient, but, but you know, there's always hikers yeah. with trail mix that they, <laughs> they can beg from. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. The, the ecology of the Western of Western North America is so unusual that way. I mean, I can't think of any sort of equivalent uh, east of the Great Plains. It is it is it is amazing to me the way that these these two organisms you know fit together in such a such a fascinating way, in in two kind of iconic and and really uh, appealing species too. And in, in the white bark mm-hmm. and the Clark's nutcracker, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's a match made in heaven. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you talked to a lot of researchers uh, for the podcast, some of whom work specifically with nutcrackers, but also those who don't, you know, they they are always in places where they interact with nutcrackers um, and see a lot of nutcrackers. Um, do they have any sort of wild nutcracker stories, nutcrackers following them around, looking for, looking for food, nutcrackers just doing kind of nutcrackery antics that they may have uh, encountered that you uh, that you heard on the side? Yeah, I remember talking with uh, Vlad Kovalenko, who's a University of Montana student who's doing research in the park. And he was just so thrilled to tell us about all the antics that they would observe, you know, <laughs> seemingly like playing together, yeah. diving off of cliffs, chasing each other. And I mean, there's always a danger of anthropomorphizing, but he was just like, they seem like they're having so much fun yeah, all the time. All the time. And I mean, a lot of birds, it's like all business, you know? Right. <laughs> you gotta find a mate. You gotta feed the young. You gotta, but the nutcrackers, they seem like they're having a great time. Yeah, for sure. They're like clowns. And, and it's sort of oh, a, yeah. a Corvid thing, I guess, to kind of mm-hmm. be in that way in a sense. But um you know, to be able to be so efficient, I wonder if that has anything to do with it too. Like the they they are, you know, eating this high energy food source, and therefore they have this ability to sort of focus on other aspects of their biology, as right? Well, like they of, have kind of an energy surplus with all yeah, of the right. pine nuts. And I mean, I guess I sort of joke about the birds don't need the trees as much, but perhaps I mean, I it would certainly be tough for the nutcrackers without the white bark pines. Yeah. 
Are there any other birds that are doing something similar to this? Maybe not caching to the extent that the Clark's nutcrackers are, but any birds that might be in the same sort of habitat that sort of do parts of that whole connection that they have with the white bark pine? Well, so it's this is sort of a different thing, but I know that there are other stone pines and there mm-hmm. are other like, you know, on other continents, like there's one in Russia. Yeah. And so, and there is a bird that performs a similar role. I should have looked up what it's called, but well, they're, yeah, this, they're, this, they're similar Eurasian nutcrackers too. And I, yeah. I wonder if they are doing similar things with pines in, uh, in the Alps or in the, yeah, the there are Highlands. some similar relationships yeah. on other continents. Of course, mm-hmm. we're most familiar with the ones in our backyard. Of but course. Yeah. It's not entirely unique, but. Of course, it's unique to where we are. So, yeah, absolutely. So, how long does it take these these pine cone these pine trees these white bark pines to um, to begin producing seeds such that nutcrackers can actually begin helping them along? So it takes a while. Some trees can start producing cones within a decade or two, but it takes white bark pines minimum fifty years to start producing cones. Sometimes seventy or eighty years. And and they are amassing species too. So some years there's a very minimal cone crop. Some years it's okay, and some years it's huge. Last year there were mm-hmm. a ton of cones. Wow. Um, but yeah, so it's this whole restoration program just occurs on a much longer time scale than we really can see the end of the line. You know, and I mean, certainly for nutcrackers, that's many many generations of nutcrackers. Right. We are much shorter lived than a white bark pine, and a Clark's nutcracker is much shorter lived than us. So mm. it's a question that a lot of the researchers are asking: is like, are nutcrackers still nesting in the park with the huge losses of white bark pine that we've had right. here? Will will they come back if if they've left? Will they come back if the white bark pine are restored? But if you think about it, that's you may not even see that. Yeah, many many generations right. of nutcrackers from now, we yeah. won't even see that. It's a yeah. couple generations of humans from now, and so yeah, like they put trackers on some of the nutcrackers, and they oh, really go all over the place. Yeah, they've fr- nutcrackers from here have gone to Wyoming to Utah. Wow, so really far afield, and can seemingly live off all kinds of things, and so. What will happen is kind of a question mark. Is there any seasonal movement to these nutcrackers? I mean, they're moving a lot. Are they just kind of straight nomadic, go where the food is, yeah. sort of know in a way where that food is going to be, or just go until you find something? Or right. are they they're pretty you know, kind of doing a circuit? Yeah, I imagine Yeah, so. they don't migrate Makes like, sense. you know, the way we think of warblers or something right, where right. it's really predictable and they go to a certain location and come back. The nutcrackers will go where they can find food. Yeah, how do you catch a Clark's nutcracker to put one of those trackers <laughs> on it? I imagine they're almost too smart for the traps it's that we have. It's quite a process. I know jays are very tough. Yeah, and that was one of my questions too. I was like, these are yeah. incredibly smart birds. How right. are you catching them? Um, but talking to Vlad and to Lisa Bate, who's a biologist in the park, they told us this elaborate contraption. So it was the winter. Yeah. There's snow everywhere. They set up bow nets on the ground with uh-huh. suet bait. And they would have to, they told us these stories of, and like, I'm 
a bit of a wimp. I'm like, oh, it's 62 <laughs> degrees. I need my jacket. And they have to sit perfectly still, hiding in the woods, sitting in these chairs with their line to pull the bone at to, mm-hmm. to set it off, waiting for the birds to come in. And if they would move one little finger, yeah. they'd immediately see them and leave. They caught one bird and they were convinced that it told its mate to like, yeah. don't go near that. Yeah. I think that does happen, actually. <laughs> yeah. And I thought one of the cutest things that they told us was that when they were processing the birds, like tying on the little backpacks that mm-hmm. they that they wear to track them, they, I mean, of course, they all had different personalities. You know, some yeah. were like, you know, pecking them constantly. Some were totally chill. But they found that if they gave them a little twig to hold in their claws, they would kind of calm down. (laughs) And I guess that makes sense. You know, if you're used to being a bird who's sitting in a tree who needs something. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just I thought it was so cute. Just yeah, to think of them as I mean, yeah, they're individuals too with personalities. And they're gonna be stressed if some giant being is handling them. You just figure you're done for and sort of give up and then all of a sudden you're not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the, The wild thing about those backpacks is that you don't just have to catch the bird once. But you have to catch the bird twice. Or do you not? I know for some of them, for some birds, you have to like get the backpack back and then plug it mm, back into the so computer. So not for these ones. So oh, these, well, that's, that's actually very smart. Because otherwise, I don't think you could catch it twice. <laughs> I know. Yes. Yeah. And I assume that's probably why they selected yeah, this right. technology. And it tracks them in real time, more or less. Oh, cool. So they can see where they are. Um, and they you can also go out in the field with a tracker and it will... Mm-hmm kind of tell you once you're in the radius and then you can kind of narrow it down sort of like a VHF antenna this is actually UAF right. it's a little bit different yeah. but same same but different yeah yeah I've seen that technology using with uh with box turtles um, which oh. are much easier to track than any bird <laughs> <laughs> I suppose anything that doesn't fly is a yeah. little yeah and a barely little <laughs> you're, you're looking at like months instead of we instead of days or weeks yeah um, yeah I, I do think they know what's going on when you do that sort of thing because I've, I've done a little bit of bird banding and um, like you almost never catch blue jays because mm. the blue jays sort of figure out what's going on and, and avoid mist nets at least um, mm-hmm. and if you're trying to catch a bird with a with a, some sort of any other process that requires you to stay still and not move for long periods of time uh, to, I can't imagine like that. That means that the bird is, is got something that you're, you're not gonna be able to catch it on normal. Oh methods. yeah. They're That's on an extreme us. method. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it was pretty impressive to hear about the lengths they went to, to put backpacks on just eight birds. <laughs> That's was, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see those, uh, those maps. Are those available anywhere or do they, I yeah, I don't know if they'll end up making it publicly available. There's certainly like figures from some of the papers mm-hmm. that show them dispersing. And it's incredible. Um Taza Shaming has done a lot of work on nutcrackers in Jackson Hole. I think she's working in Washington now. And I think she has I think her work, you can see some of those figures. But it's pretty impressive how yeah. far afield they go. I, I, I can't get enough of that. That those studies and the maps they put on, I'm kind of a map geek as it is, um, and I think birding plays into that a lot. And yeah. um, those maps where it shows where birds are birds are moving over the landscape are. Oh, it's just so cool because it's stuff that we did not have access to. No, even a decade or two ago, it's like where are these birds migrating to? No idea. Let alone watching them in real time 
Yeah. And we can't tell the difference between one bird and another. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it doesn't make we would necessarily think that uh, a nutcracker that you see in Jackson Hole would be the same nutcracker month to month to month to month, when the reality is that it could, it absolutely could not be. It might not be. I mean, that could be a bird. Right. That bird you saw first is off in somewhere in Utah now, and it's been moved for a bird that's come south from from Wyoming and or come south from Montana. And like you wouldn't know it because we can't tell the difference between. Yeah. Them, but, you know, these birds are moving in ways we can't imagine. Yeah, it kind of makes them individuals to us yeah. in a way that we can't just yeah. see with our eyes. Yeah, it's, for sure. It's pretty cool to see. Yeah, we're certainly at a golden age for for bird science, I think, which is yeah, sort of ironic. Yeah, I feel very lucky to have started <laughs> birding in the last few years. There's some really cool stuff out there that we did not have when, when I started. That's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. So what are your plans for, for Headwaters going forward? Are you, um, I imagine the stories that you can tell about Glacier National Park are, are many. There are so many. Yeah, yeah. We're each season has been totally different. Season one was kind of a overview of the park and each episode is about a different area of the park with a few different stories. Season two was all about white bark pine and these ecosystems, Clark's nutcrackers. And then season three is going to be about history. Oh, cool. History leading up to the formation of the park in 1910. And that's been so fun to research as well. Yeah, that's a trip. There's no shortage of of stories to tell about this place. Absolutely. Do you want to tell people where they can find it? Yeah. So you can find Headwaters wherever you get your podcasts. Um, You can also find it on the Glacier Conservancy website. They support the show. um, And that's glacier.org slash headwaters. And it's also on the on Glacier's NPS website, nps.gov slash GLAC. But it's probably easiest to find it from yeah, the Yeah, I love the idea website. of a national park doing a podcast, telling the stories. That's really cool. Yeah, I think all national parks should have podcasts. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, every single one. Great Smoky yeah. Mountains. Uh, give me a call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perry Sesnet is the host of Headwaters, a podcast produced by Glacier National Park and the Glacier National Park Conservancy. The season about white bark pines featuring a star turn by Clark's Nutcrackers is available wherever podcasts are found, including probably the place where you found this one. Um, Thank you for your time, Perry. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for having me. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits. You know what they are by now. My favorite, I think, is the magazine archive. It is pretty phenomenal to go back in time and see old birding magazines, if nothing else for the crazy old birding advertisements in them. Anyway, you can get information about joining the ABA at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week. Johan, Christine, and Ray Alexanderson of Brooklyn, New York, Timothy Graves of Bronx, New York, Chris Schock of Longmont, Colorado, David and Lindsay Ludwig of Lakewood, Colorado, Ryan Morose of Tucson, Arizona, and Matthew Ritter of Warren, New Jersey, all joined the ABA this week and noted the podcast as their reason for doing so in the little shine-up form. Thank you so much for that. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who finds it bizarre that not a single nutcracker makes an appearance in Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker, though there is a spot for the Sugar Plum Fairy Turn. Technical production is by John Lowry, who thinks that the Rat King really should have been played by some sort of barn owl because they're so accomplished rodent eaters. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who think that the Nutcracker genus, Nuka Fraga, should instead be changed to Nuka Fraggle 
because if there's any North American bird that's mostly Muppet, it is, it is this one. You can find us online at ABA.org on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter we are at ABA. Speaking for myself, my ideal nutcracker suite involves a well-stocked hotel room with various treats kind of tucked away in hidden corners. Ooh, here's a $3 Snickers tucked behind the mattress in the headboard. I guess the last guest must have missed it. Win! Questions and comments come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week. <laughs>